The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. So earlier today I had uh, extensive conversations with with Bill that I want to get back to, but since you're in here for a while, Brian, let's use you as a subject briefly, and then you can help me interview Bill since you know him somewhat better than I. Uh, How long have you been blind, Brian? I've been blind for, oh, maybe 32 years now since I was a sophomore in college. And how did you lose your vision? Um, It was a... It was a uh, process that was slow, result of an autoimmune thing that happened, and um, uh, but I crossed over into legal blindness somewhere in my sophomore year. Uh huh. And do you have any vision now? Just light perception. Uh huh. Um, where did you um, uh, where'd you go to school? I grew up in Los Angeles area. Went to school um, down at Birmingham High School in Encino first, and then up in. UC Berkeley, where I got degrees and uh, started working in San Francisco after that in 1980 or so. I see. And uh, where'd you develop, where did you learn the skills of um, blindness? You know, like many people, I stayed away from acquiring the skills as long as I could fake it and uh, get by on what was uh, a little bit of vision. But the NFB did have a training center in Sacramento for one year in 1994. And when I learned about it, I was one of the students there. The NFB training center there was much like the centers NFB still runs in um, Minnesota and Colorado and Louisiana. And uh, many of the same folks worked there and the principals were the same. So I threw myself into it and um, uh, that's where I learned my blindness okay. skills. How old were you at that time? 39. Uh, so you'd spent about 20 years of adulthood with, without those skills. Are you an adept Braille reader now? I am. I, I read Braille. I, it, was, it was only at the NFB Training Center that for the first time I picked up a white cane and have been using it continuously since. Computer skills, Braille skills, and all those other intangible skills that make the difference between uh, just getting by and a life with self-confidence and self-respect. Uh-huh. What were you doing uh, in your life before you t- took the time to go to the NFB training center in Sacramento? Both before and after that training, I was working as a science journalist, and I had a, a science news syndicate called the Center for Science Reporting, and I wrote about science and public policy for newspapers and magazines and um, I did that before, it, although it got increasingly difficult as I lost more vision. After the training, I went back and had the most successful years as a journalist I ever had because I was using the alternative techniques that I, I learned. And in and around that time, we founded the Sacramento NFB chapter. And one of the earliest guests uh, to come to talk about some of his experiments and some of his um, um, experiences over the decades was Bill Gary who came to, out to Sacramento and Bill I think I may have that tape of your presentation from <laughs> 1995 or 1996 well that'd be fun to hear that how did you get in the uh, business of administering organizations like the San Francisco Lighthouse uh, that's an interesting story. I, I didn't have a background in nonprofit administration. I went to school f- with journalism. I worked in journalism in 
radio and, and television and print and magazines, and I was happily doing that. And four years after I got my training at the NFB Center, a friend said, the director at the Society for the Blind in Sacramento is retiring after 33 years, and you should apply. And I told my friend that I didn't know anything about nonprofit administration. They, they weren't uh, persuaded. They said, you have to ask some fresh things. The, the society could benefit from um, you're asking these fresh questions. Apply. And so I did. And they had very many applicants. And perhaps it was because of my relative indifference about whether I was accepted or not that made me the candidate that they selected. Were you the first blind person in that position? I was the first uh, blind director there uh, of that agency and uh, still retain that title. There have been two directors after me, the only blind director at that that agency. And and here at the Lighthouse of San Francisco, you're the first blind director? No, the Lighthouse is 102 years old, and my predecessor, Anita Aaron, who was director for 19 years, is blind. Uh-huh. So... So I learned about nonprofit administration there at Society for the Blind, and I was there for half a dozen years. And then when you get um, the opportunity to work for Joanne Wilson in any way, shape, or form, when she was commissioner of the RSA, um, there was the regional office position in San Francisco that was open, and I applied for that position. And for from uh, 2004 until the end of all the regional offices of RSA, uh, I worked in that capacity and learned the federal rehabilitation process and, um, and did that and a few other things along the way until six months ago I started working here as director at the San Francisco Lighthouse. Were you involved with the NFB before you went to this training center in 1994? I was. Um, I had gone to some meetings and actually for me, what was key was to find blind role models. As my vision diminished, I knew there were blind inventors, scientists, writers, administrators throughout the gamut, but I didn't know any of them. And reading the Braille Monitor in the early 90s, I started making notes of people who were doing cool things. And I actually looked them up and sought, found some in Northern California. And those were some of my early mentors into blindness. And uh, it was through their information that I learned that NFB was setting up the new training center in in Sacramento. And um, those human-to-human contacts were all essential. And what became of the Sacramento Training Center? Well, for complicated reasons, it had to close at the end of 1994. There were economic and other issues involved, and um, and so it did close. Uh, it was... it. Um, the model that it was working on was not at that time sustainable out here, I think. Uh, how does, uh, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that the Louisiana Center, which is the one I have most familiarity with, I was there for uh, a week shortly after I started at the <coughs> NFB, that the Lu- Louisiana Center uh, gets money from the state of Louisiana, and when they take students from elsewhere, the, the uh, state governments cover them. Was that not going to happen in California? Uh, We did get Department of Rehab money in the NFB training centers, but it was the first year of the center. It was not enough and not fast enough, and um, California has four other blindness residential training centers, 
and it takes a while. It takes a bridge of time to get uh, get established and running um, in a way that is a viable option for clients in California. And I just don't think there was enough time hmm. to set those referral patterns up before it had to close. Oh, that's regrettable, I'm sure. Um, did you ever feel a conflict uh, as a loyal member of the Federation and uh, an, an uh, employee of an agency between the way the agency might want to do things and the way the NFB does? There is a tension there, and I think, I think there are some principles one has to follow. As Any community agency has to be open to every stripe of the community because it's about services and training, so it is not... Uh, no agency that I've yet worked for has been an, an official NFB training center. So we have to make people welcome of all stripes. On the other hand, um, I think agencies are stronger when they are closest to their community. And uh, the, the closer that we had uh, relations with all the articulate and passionate people in our community, the more honest and the more um, effective I think all agencies can be. And that's the model. I used in Sacramento, and that's the model we're using here at the Lighthouse now. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Uh, so you have no problem with the NFB and, and the openness that you, that you have. Uh, I want to talk frankly yes. about these things because because uh, um, uh, I, 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 I personally want to learn more about the, the, the NFB and its relations with its uh, with its most articulate members and their feelings about the organization and the uh, and alternatives. Sure. Um, which direction do you want to pursue here? Well, talk about about your 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 life in the as an NFB mm-hmm. member. Mm-hmm. I've been active in my affiliate ever since I first learned about the NFB, and I've served in all kinds of capacities as the need as a, arose arisen. And I've been asked, I've served in our scholarship committee and in research and development committee I, I serve on now and in our quiet cars committee and other things. I've served in our state affiliate, um, uh, founding a chapter in Sacramento and on our board of directors for many years. Although I don't hold any official position with the NFB now, I'm, I'm certainly contributing member. And I make no bones about where I learned about my blindness and blindness philosophy, and that philosophy of, of positivism and um, self-respect comes directly from the NFB. I cannot uh, myself uh, insist that any individual who comes to any group that I work with must follow one pattern or another, but I'm free and open about the things that got me to be the self-respecting blind person I am. And uh, that was important, as important for me in blindness as learning, learning to read is in literacy for me. When it gave me a vocabulary, and it gave me a context in which um, I want to develop blind-positive programming and serve the community in intense and immersive ways. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was telling Bill earlier that I became friendly with Dan Fry, who just... Uh, stepped down after a very short spell as editor of the Braille Monitor. And um, Dan was telling me about um, a member of his age cohort named Zachary Shore, who's a pretty distinguished historian now. And um, 
uh, Dan regretted the fact that that uh, Zach Shore, although remaining a member of the NFB, really has stepped back from it. And and uh, Dan's thought was that someone like Zachary Shore, a very accomplished, very intelligent person, needs to be actively involved in the NFB for the benefit of those who are who are less capable than he. And Dan assured me when he when he. Um, when he left the employee of the NFB, that he'd continue being a, uh, an active, participating member, and it sounds like that's kind of the the, uh, the approach that you have, uh, Brian. I'll make a contribution wherever I'm asked, and I, I have and will. Zach Shore is a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. and he teaches at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. He's written seven books now to um, wide appeal, and he has an active correspondence um, with Dr. Maurer, and also um, he has he has cast some some things in print about his experience with Dr. Jernigan, who was his first link to the NFB. And I encourage you to find a way to talk to Zach Shore and um, hear his story directly from him. Okay. Well, I certainly don't want you to speak for Zach Shore. <laughs> I just I wanted to see see if there you know a commonality and or or where there's a divergence in in how important it is how how important. A, uh, a blind person who's, who's, so to speak, made it, who is self-respecting and independent, and uh, how important your, your, your continued involvement with the NFB is. What, what Dan had said to me is that, is that because it's because of the NFB that he's the, the, the self-confident, independent person he is, and he, and he owes it to, the, um, to his, his, his blind brothers and sisters to, to be actively involved in their behalf. And uh, it sounds like you feel that way and that the NFB is the vehicle in which to do that. It is. It is. At, at, the, at, at a very particular time in my life, it, it was the reason why I, I found a new paradigm about how to be blind in, a, in an effective and joyous way. And I don't know what I would have done if I had to depend upon Hollywood or just uh, being a lone wolf in the wilderness to get me there. I think everybody learns from models of success. And, you know, it, it was, it, it's one of the reasons why I invited Bill Gary to come to a newly formed chapter, because he is a model of how to work with things. How, to, how, to, how does a blind person learn to solder? It's not about the soldering. It's about learning that you're an active person in the world, that you can think up things and try them out. And fail and try something new. And that paradigm is something that I think a lot of blind kids don't grow up with it, carrying around it in their heads about it. So, um, yes, it is, it is a, in terms of um, setting the, um, not just the intellectual, but the emotional context of what it is to be blind and effective and also cool. This is where the NFB often makes a really huge contribution. We talk so much about civil rights and other things, but I think part of the real contribution the NFB makes is just for having a platform for where where cool people are. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know Maurice Perret? I do. <laughs> Maurice Maurice insists that he's he's one cool dude. He's <laughs> he's, a, he's a funny guy. Uh, let me ask you about your experiences with the leadership of the NFB. You've mentioned Joanne Wilson, who I'm privileged to work with in Baltimore, and who 
I just think is is an astounding person. Um, the energy that she put into getting the first uh, NFB organized training center set up, um, her unhappy experiences as a federal uh, bureaucrat, um, I just find her a, a particularly friendly, open, and and uh, energetic person. Um, how about other people in the leadership of the organization? Did you did you know Kenneth Jernigan at all? Well, I did, and um, it was it was a pivotal experience for me. I mean, I I met Dr. Jernigan um, early in my journey, and he invited me to Baltimore on several occasions as his guest to talk about what we could do in journalism to get the, the, the NFB story out in different ways and about the science and technology aspect of what we wish as blind people. He was so generous. He had me up to his home. He, um, he cooked for me, uh, sometimes making meals out of scraps. And just, uh, you know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't about the dinner. It was, it was about something a little bit beyond that. Um, and I remember one particular m- night at the national headquarters where I think he and I were the only ones in the building that night and he sat up in that harbor room and with cups and saucers and knives and forks drew a diagram of the trade routes in the Mediterranean (laughs) in the 14th century and showed the importance of Italy in this and talked about the Renaissance and talked about the changing world powers and we didn't go to bed till three in the morning. And to see a guy with that breadth of uh, experience and passion and the ability to um, connect with people made made a, a lifelong impression on me. Wow. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I hear that type of thing about uh, about Kenneth Jernigan. People who knew him well seem really devoted to him. Um, Mark Maurer. Do you have uh, have you had much interaction with Mark Maurer? I have from the very beginning. Um, when I first got involved with the um, the training center in Sacramento, and afterwards, he was almost always at Doctor Jernigan's side in those years in the mid nineties. Uh, and I met him, and he also had me to his home, and um, I was impressed by a number of things. Um, Certainly, um, he's a leader in the NFB and has very forceful and complicated um, aspects to him. But I loved it when I was at his home and there was a problem with his refrigerator. We got down on the floor and we had to we had to improvise a kind of lever to raise the refrigerator up so we could shim it and uh, make it level and and work better. And I think there was just something about, as a, as a person who was newly out about blindness and using non-visual techniques, to be on the floor on all fours with Dr. Maurer and to just say, we have a problem, let's just fix it, let's just figure out a way. I'm not going to, there's no specialness about blindness, there was no, no um, high technology or any preciousness about it, we were just solving a problem together. and. That's kind of a metaphor for how I saw him going forward. This is fascinating because as a sighted person, relatively new to the world of blindness, I find blind guys 
frequently as role models for me about you see a problem, you deal with it. You deal with it. And, and you don't have to be... You don't have to be blind to look at things that way. You don't have to be blind to fail to be able to look at things that way. And and uh, sometimes I I see in the NFB and and uh, uh, the the notion that you take care of things. There's a woman working at the uh, at the National Center named um, Treva Olivero. Treva has uh, uh, had a leg amputated. Um, she's got no residual vision to speak of. She may have some light sensitivity. And um, she insists on on uh, using a, um, a non-powered wheelchair and gets around with with her her uh, right hand pushing, right arm pushing the wheel and the left arm with, with the cane. And um, she had to go to, uh, to an event by herself as part of her job responsibilities that was in Texas. And she got to the uh, – her husband was telling me this afterwards. She got there and found that they did not have a uh, an accessible room for wheelchair people. Mm-hmm. I said to her husband, well, what did she do? And he said – she took a non-accessible room and she did it, yeah. you know. And that and that general approach to things that that uh, I, I just find uh, at my advanced age kind of useful. I was telling you that I don't like to travel, and I I see, you know, blind guys getting on planes, going all over the place, and and figuring out how to get to where they want to go to, and yes. and. And uh, um, I, I, I my my guess is that that was much more the exception before the uh, the days of, of Newell Perry and Jacobus Tenbrook. Well, we'll hear about that. But Bill, do you still um, walk to work? I've got a foot problem that uh, precludes that at this time, but I will do again. It's twenty six blocks. <clears throat> the way I do it. And uh, but it's uh, you know San Francisco is a provincial little place, has a lot of uh, normal width streets, and it's not quite like the peninsula further south where there are six lane things everywhere. But uh, it it uh, lends itself to sort of my uh, Nevada boy country style of uh, of living, and I I go where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Well, do you need to? Do you want to add anything, Brian? I'm sure that there's a lot more to Brian Bashan and his blindness that uh, that's not evident to me right away because we didn't have a chance to talk before this. What What further would you like to say? I just want to say I, I welcome the chance to get to know you more and and follow any contribution you wish we, me to make. But I am passionate about our history and. One of the photographs I have is uh, the California Institution for the, it's a postcard, the California Institution for the Deaf and Blind in, um, I think, 1906 is the picture. It was a lone Victorian building in the Bear Hills in uh, the East Bay. And I think about that often as I think about those early times and and the, the world that Newell Perry started with and how we are all heirs to the organizations and the the brain trust that he created. So as we go forward, if if you wish me to connect you with some of the people who are still around, and there are a few critical people we really want to interview, I'm very happy to do it. Oh, that would be great. That's terrific. 
Um, let's turn to very good, Brian. <laughs> let's turn to Bill. Thank you for the accolades. Well, you are an interesting guy, Bill. So um, I guess worthy of accolades. Um, let's well, let's start, Bill, with with your own background, and then and then we'll go into um, um, your uh, genealogy, so to speak. Uh, you were born in Nevada, at, Reno. In Reno, in it was a gamble. They lost. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, And um, you're telling me earlier. Well, why don't, why don't you review? Uh, well, I'm uh, second generation. Uh, my father and I both had retino bilateral retinoblastoma. He um, had uh, his eyes enucleated in. Um, uh, after six months, and uh, I at ten months, and he, um, because of um, uh, just hearing about a school at year uh, when he was eight years old, uh, came to the California State School for the Blind in uh, on Derby Street in Berkeley, and uh, got his education there. Um, I, on the other hand, uh, spent much of my boyhood after his retirement here in California, where we came uh, to California in 1954. And um, so by the time I uh, came here, I was uh, six years old, and I went through one year of public school, at the, or one year of blind school at the uh, California School for the Blind, and then the mainstreaming programs became uh, prolific, and uh, uh, sure enough, in my hometown, we had one of those programs, almost experimental at the time, uh, run by one woman in a uh, what we so often called the Braille Room in, in various of these schools, in an elementary school. And so from second grade on, I was a, a product of the public school system, after which, uh, after high school, I went to uh, one year of junior college at Chabot College in Hayward, and then uh, to Cal Poly, where I spent four years getting a Bachelor of Science degree in electronics engineering, as they called it then. That's since the the title has been abolished and I, when I write it down it's electrical engineering um, you mentioned when we spoke on the phone that uh, you with a hereditary problem happened to come on the scene just when all of these um, premature babies were were um, coming on with uh, with retinopathy of prematurity and uh, that the the number of of um, blind kids really kind of overwhelmed the the schools for the blind. It tripled tripled the population of that little blind school it was designed for fifty kids, and there were a hundred fifty when I went there. And is that part of the reason that you didn't like it, or that it was no, too crowded? I I just didn't do well at a uh, at a place with you know for 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 all the development of that. Many of the people who were hired at these at those places were not the polished, credentialed educators of today. Uh, 
and uh, and so there was always the inconsistency of authority here and there, or uh, things that just uh, I considered. Well, <laughs> I only know now that I considered. I I was I cracked under under just the um, what seemed to be an unbeatable arbitrariness of uh, of the of the situation. My father did fine. He didn't understand why I was so unhappy. Hmm. But uh, boy, oh boy, there was a, a family doctor who discovered the trend of these. Um, mainstream programs and he said one's starting up right in your town here Castro Valley California and uh, boy was I set free huh. I, I felt a great relief did you did you learn braille at the at the blind school though yes. you did and I understand that I would have gotten a, a fine education an academic education there uh-huh I, so, as a matter of fact I visited there in the at the fifth grade and met many of the uh, kids that I had been in the dormitory with, in the annex dormitory, which hired uh, harbored <laughs> fit nine kids in this uh, in this room with beds uh, cheek by jowl, and and uh, I, I went through their day of classes, and they were hard. Uh-huh. They were hard for me. I remember a typing class where we were handed a braille sheet just a, a copy exercise and uh, I had taken typing too for at least a year uh, uh, that that I thought I was okay at and uh, when they said go I never heard people type <laughs> that fast so they they were doing well academically and at that time the school for the blind was still largely um, uh, children with uh, with blindness only and, and no other handicaps? Because my That's understa- correct. Okay. Right. So the, you were one of the first to be mainstreamed, and, and over time uh, most blind kids with just one uh, disability came to be mainstreamed. Well, it's not quite that simple. I, um, and I wasn't the first, by the way. There were other kids who, who left about the same time I did as they set these programs up. No, the um, residential schools are still um, used where uh, where somebody just cannot get service. There are itinerant teachers um, who have a uh, van full of appropriate equipment and so forth who drive around, and you might see your um, special category teacher twice a week if you're lucky. And uh, and uh, there are places where they don't go, and and the school has them uh, as part of their population, and they can be as bright as uh, Brian here. Uh, <laughs> uh, I so hope they say, yeah. the, so they, you know, there is that um, uh, th- there is a dual population there, and uh, uh, there are d- just so many reasons to be. Uh, disabled, especially with prematurity, uh, you get combinations what we now call coexisting disabilities, and so forth. So, uh, residential school serves 
um, some of those uh, children too. So it's complicated a little, a little bit because you still have the smart walking around, running around kid who uh, needs support to be able to do that too. Bill, I wanted to get to something you mentioned at the outset before we get further into your life. Your dad was blind. Uh, did you say he was eight when he came to the California school? That's correct. What what year would that have been about? Uh, 19, uh, 19 eight? No, let's see. 19... Nine. No, that's 1919. 19. No, that wouldn't be right either. He was born in essentially 1910. So he would have... Um, come in there in 1918 he remembered the war uh, and that the uh, uh, the all the war songs and the so forth and all that kind of stuff and that uh, people's families were gravely affected by World War One. What stories did he bring down to you about what the blind school was like in the 1918 and the early 20s Yes, uh, I could go on ad infinitum when you talk about um, (coughs) Newell Perry had set up the department, what became the Department of Advanced Studies, but he had taken uh, a a look at each and every student and pulled out any of them that had a bit of a spark and uh, put them through special paces. There was a study hour, study time, two hours a night, five days a week. And uh, Dr. Perry had worked out a, a way for, for uh, college students from Cal, from the University of California, to get some credit somehow or, or something in order to uh, uh, entice them to come and be uh, readers for the kids and to help them with work and so forth. And then he also set up with a um, college prep school at that time called University High, which was set up to, to take sighted kids through the, the the brightest of them, through the paces to feed them into uh, Cal Berkeley. And so he set up a, a situation where his blind kids would go for the last two years of their four-year high school education at University High. And so, in a way, he was on a fast track for something. Uh, he, they, they recognized that he um, uh, had a, essentially a, a, a rich background from his family. He ended up skipping three grades on the way through to high school. And uh, um, the stories were things like uh, when uh, readers were reading to the students from uh, some of these, as I say, from uh, from Cal, uh, Dr. Perry would reach around behind this child or that just randomly and take the short hairs of his the back of his uh, head and jerk them up and down and say, what'd she say, what'd she say? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, stuff like that. So he was quite a taskmaster. And he taught them all of the bright group, taught them all grade three Braille. Um, They came out 
uh, he hoped, especially out of university high, to be uh, Cal students. And that uh, led to the brain trust, as we, uh, as I call it, of the uh, uh, blind folks who formed the California Council of the Blind, I think in 1934, and which became national by uh, Tenbrook's efforts in 1940. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that diverted from your question tremendously. No, it's, it's a start, but there's... This chapter in the late teens and early twenties is something that's not represented well in our literature. Uh-huh. If you know, this month is now. Um, it's been co-opted. You know, National uh-huh. California Disability History. People yeah, think yeah. disability history started in the seventies or eighties or whatever. Uh-huh. And this this business of Dr. Perry and this rigorous, relentless uh, devotion to achievement is relatively unknown in the wider disability community. I wonder what made, in, from what you remember from your father, what made Dr. Perry tick? What made, what made him so, so driven to build this brain trust? And, and Part of it may have been his, um, his drive to be taken um, extra seriously. He Apparently, one of the stories is that he um, stowed away on a vessel uh, to Europe and then got his doctorate in mathematics in Heidelberg. Yes. And he came back to the United States and couldn't find work and was eventually hired at the School for the Blind as a teacher. Now, he was so proud of his being Dr. Perry that even though the um, superintendent at the time, fellow with the last name of French, was, uh, was also a doctorate of uh, educational type, I suppose, Dr. French, whom Dr. Perry insisted on calling Mr. French. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and he insisted on being called doctor. Apparently his wife had to call him doctor. And uh, that, was, that was a beginning of, of something that, uh, although there was an endearing an, in, um, story, an endearing story of where um, a new kid came to the school, and I heard this from Vern Nelson, another student, and uh, the kid was uh, Perry Sunquist, and uh, Dr. Perry somehow encountered him, and uh, he says, uh, well, what is your name, young man? Perry, can you prove it? <laughs> and Perry just sort of stuttered around, and he says, well, that's all right. My name's Perry, too. <laughs> he had uh, kindness, but he was obsessed with achievement. That's for sure. And you you knew him yourself, and uh, yes. as a when he was quite old, yeah, uh, he he never lost his uh, mental acuity, did he? In- uh, not in my knowing him, and mm-hmm. I, and I uh, I can't remember when he died, but when in, in 1956. Um, 
I was nine years old and I was at the um, at the convention in San Francisco at the Elks Club and uh, he uh, showed me several things that impressed him at the AIDS and appliances table which AFP had set up there and uh, uh, just to uh, sort of size me up he picked me up he was a short man so it, it didn't take much picking before I was even with his head. <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, at least by that time, he was short. But I remember visiting him three or four times in my memory at his uh, home. And uh, it was it was a nice home, and people would just drop in. I mean, he had a real loyal bunch. And then there's the... The story, which may take too long. I don't think so. Go ahead. Well, uh, my father didn't know that uh, he was going to pass on a gene that would result in a blind child. So, and my father had skipped the state of California in order to avoid being funneled into uh, the California's the the cow to be funneled into cow after um, after university high school he graduated from uni high but then he took off and uh, he was already registered by uh, work of Doctor Perry and his minions of, uh, to enter Cal but he didn't want anything to do with it so he went back to Reno. Um, where uh, another student of CSB was uh, uh, trained by a uh, man of the Chickering Piano uh, Factory who trained my father, another blind guy, training another blind guy. And uh, my folks had a very successful piano business coexisting with the man who trained him. And uh, and also, by the way, there was piano tuning as a shop course in in the school, and my father had taken that. So, uh, so anyway, here we were in Reno, successful. My sister, who is sighted, was born in 1942. I was born in 1947. And by 1948, they knew they had a blind child. So they um, uh, called Dr. Perry and asked him what to do about this because the Nevada children were not going to uh, the California school because of the glut of blind children. They were being absorbed in part by the Utah School for the Blind. Mm -hmm. And my folks uh, assumed that was a lesser education. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I've known some very highly uh, educated people came from Utah. But uh, from that school. But be that as it may, Dr. Perry got on a train. You know, the rumor, of course, is always around that uh, uh, that this great man or that great person doesn't travel by himself. The rumors are usually not true. And in this case, Dr. Perry got on a, a train to Reno and uh, to come and visit the boy. And uh, 
at the age of uh, one and a half, I'm told, or something, two, two years old maybe. It was a piano shop. There were pianos everywhere in every room. And uh, my mom said, uh, go play the piano, dear. And I went and I picked out uh, something on the black keys that my sister, who was studying piano, was played. And uh, Dr. Perry, so they tell me, said, this boy needs a good education. <laughs> now, when you, when, when you affect Newell Perry's voice, are you, are you is, is this it's, from memory? It's, it's something like from memory. Uh-huh. I think I've got it pretty much right. Uh-huh. With the rolling R's and things too, <laughs> and so he uh, he said the only way that you can go to the California School for the Blind is to be resident in California, so you'll have to move. So do you know? My uh, mother said, "Fine, this is fine. I uh, I I want to work out different investments." My father was getting uh, quite ill from actually uh, the nervous tension of uh, piano tuning and so forth, which was uh, it was egregious work. Mm-hmm. And and so they liquidated the piano business and came to California in order to put me in the California School for the Blind. Dr. Perry was no longer working there, but. Uh, but it was, in his mind, uh, the the way to get the best education. And the fact that I didn't um, psychologically survive well must have been a great disappointment to everybody. Huh. But um, be that as it may, that's the kind of power he had. Here's a boy who deserted him, and with one phone call, he showed up. And he had such power over them that they changed their entire livelihood to uh, to bend to his recommendation. Huh. Um, Tenbrook said that when he went when when he started at Cal, that he couldn't get support. That the only support for the for the blind in California was for them to sit at home and not to not to get an advanced education, uh, and that it was Perry's doing that he was able to do that. I've read somewhere that that was the uh, basis for the creation of the American Brotherhood of the Blind. Do you know anything about that? I don't. Uh, no, I don't. But it it, it was certainly um, Chick Tenbrook's idea or, or speech in 1948 that there are recordings of that where uh, the uh, a, relatives responsibility and all that crazy stuff was uh, was being overthrown as a as a as because of they depended on the state you were in and states generally were competing to be the lowest provider they could possibly get away with mm-hmm. and that was tr- that was true uh with the uh, with the uh, creation of the uh, Iowa Commission and all that stuff that uh, really um, unified things under a federal system. But boy, I don't know how how that worked because there were a lot of students there. There were um, um, at least of the Cal students I knew of, you know, Perry Sunquist was one of them. Uh, of course, there's uh, Dr. Tenbrook, 
whose writing, by the way, was used uh, in um, in colleges as he was defendant of the students in a fracas called the free speech movement um, that started with protests of the House American Un- Un- House Un-American Activities Committee, and uh, so there were there were students very active in the left um, at. Uh, Cal Berkeley and Dr. Tenbrook was in the academic senate and his speeches uh, were used as examples uh, for uh, for public speaking, for arguing a point for their organization and so forth. So I don't know how the other kids got through Cal, but I'm awfully glad it worked. Yeah. Do you um did you ever get a feeling that your father going into a profession like piano tuning successfully was at at a dissonance from Newell Perry's vision of what blind guy should be doing, or was was that okay? You know, it's interesting because um, Muzzy Marcelino, who was also a um, younger but uh, certainly a major figure in the California Council of the Blind, which used to be the NFB chapter in California. Um, he uh, he told a story about uh, somebody criticizing uh, the idea that blind uh, people were entering the field of chiropractics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fellow apparently said, you know that's that's quackery, don't you? Yes, but it it is a good living. <laughs> so I think that there's a wonderful paper written by Bertold Lowenfeld called Higher Education and its um, effect on employment of the blind, where he found as many of those students through the period that you were speaking of back uh, to World War One as many of those students as he could and he surveyed them to see how how many of them were employed and and what they were doing and uh not all of them came out of uh, Cal Berkeley with law degrees or sociology degrees not all of them mm-hmm. the preceding material is owned and distributed by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco California to obtain permission to use this content for classes or other uses please contact us at publications at lighthouse-sf.org. Or to learn more about the Lighthouse, visit our website at www.lighthouse-sf.org. The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. So earlier today I had uh, extensive conversations with with Bill that I want to get back to. But since you're in here for a while, Brian, let's use you as a subject briefly, and then you can help me interview Bill since you know him somewhat better than I. Uh, How long have you been blind, Brian? I've been blind for, oh, maybe 32 years now since I was a sophomore in college. And how did you lose your vision? Um, It was a... It was a uh, process that was slow, result of an autoimmune thing that happened. And um, uh, but I crossed over into legal blindness somewhere in my sophomore year. 
Uh-huh. And, how, and do you have any vision now? Just light perception. Uh-huh. Um, where did you, um, uh, where'd you go to school? I grew up in Los Angeles area. went to school um, down at Birmingham High School in Encino first, and then up in UC Berkeley where I got degrees and uh, started working in San Francisco after that in 1980 or so. I see. And uh, where'd you develop, where did you learn the skills of um, blindness? You know, like many people, I stayed away from acquiring the skills as long as I could fake it and uh, get by on what was uh, a little bit of vision. But the NFB did have a training center in Sacramento for one year in 1994. And when I learned about it, I was one of the students there. The NFB training center there was much like the centers NFB still runs in um, Minnesota and Colorado and Louisiana. And uh, many of the same folks worked there and the principals were the same. So I threw myself into it and um, uh, that's where I learned my blindness okay. skills. How old were you at that time? 39. Uh-huh. So you'd spent about 20 years of adulthood with without those skills. Are you an adept Braille reader now? I am. I, I read Braille. I it was, it was only at the NFB Training Center that for the first time I picked up a white cane and have been using it continuously since. Computer skills, Braille skills, and all those other intangible skills that make the difference between uh, just getting by and a life with self-confidence and self-respect. Uh -huh. What were you doing uh, in your life before you took the time to go to the NFB Training Center in Sacramento? Both before and after that training, I was working as a science journalist, and I had a, a science news syndicate called the Center for Science Reporting, and I wrote about science and public policy for newspapers and magazines, and um, I did